0: The blessing of the evening continues to be a great one. Not only have we been given the opportunity earlier today to assemble and to gather, but also this evening to come back together to not only encourage one another, but much more significantly to lay claim to the adoration of the God of heaven, to magnify His cause and kingdom. And certainly each of us will be blessed as a consequence of participating in the worship service as we do so today. Has the singing and the songs been encouraging and uplifting? Hasn't the sentiments expressed in prayer been very encouraging as well? For the next few moments, you've already listened as Brother Cale read Genesis 1, verse 1, the first verse in all the Bible. Of the 31,102 verses, this is the first one. And in the sense that we encounter it, we openly appreciate an already significant amount of truth, things that the human family has seen fit to challenge Things the human family has often disagreed with. Tonight, we come to another installment in our series of controversial topics. Back in January, we set before ourselves the matter that one of the lessons each month, we would give consideration to a controversial topic. This is already the fifth one this year as we have come to the month of May. And in much as we'll consider another one, it'll be the creation tonight. This opening slide is one that basically sets before you and me the following ideas. For a long, long time, of course, it seems as if challenges to the biblical record of creation were at least far less aggressive and far less serious, but many ways things changed dramatically in 1859. It was that year that a book entitled The Origin of Species was published, It was published by a gentleman you and I know rather well, at least by way of his name. It's, of course, the evolutionary doctrine. And it became fashionable to intellectually believe in evolution. And since that time, of course, that particular appreciation has gained great ascendancy. It is the primary mode of teaching in many science classes, not only in biology, but even astronomy and many other particulars as well. It has overwhelmed geology. You and I might tonight give some thought. You obviously, in order to accept that, have to some way make out the opening chapters in Genesis as a story, a myth, a fable. It can't be read exactly, it would seem, as it appears. It's merely an assertion, an appreciation to teach a general lesson, but don't read too much into the details is by and large what we're encouraged. May I ask, is that reasonable? Is that correct? Did God intend the opening 11 chapters of Genesis to be perceived as literal history? May I say that if so, you and I must stand exactly where the Word of God does, and that may well be greatly opposed to the features characteristic of human claims. You may notice about the middle of that slide could offer this thought, if you begin to compromise in some ways with respect to a topic such as this one, it isn't very long before you can begin to at least justify compromise on a host of other topics as well. And many a soul has been led at first, perhaps innocently, down a pathway that may it seemed was not very difficult, but it ended up costing that person his or her faith, and many other connected ideas related to ultimately what would be the biblical doctrine of salvation. Why don't you and I reflect for a few minutes tonight on the controversy, in some minds, in connection to the creation. Could I begin like this? This whole subject of origins, the entire topic surrounding where did we come from? Where did this universe at large come from? May I offer the following thought? This is not merely an idle consideration. It is not merely an idle topic. There are a whole host of matters that relate intricately to it. In many ways, the entire conception of a person's worldview will begin right here. How does a person see himself, this solar system, this universe at large, and his or her place in it, if it came about naturally, That is to say, there was no God in it, and it came about merely by natural force. And may I ask, that means that the entire conception of ethics must have developed that way, and therefore they rest on no higher consideration than human thinking. Why is it wrong to murder? Why is it wrong to cheat on your wife? Why is it wrong to steal? If this is merely some human idea, and those things rest on no higher authority than man then we have a problem. We can understand why some people would claim, well, there ain't anything wrong with it. It's just a matter of your own personal choice and survival of the fittest. But if there is a higher authority who put those matters in place, who especially entrenched in human thinking a wrong and a right, then that authority is to be respected. Again, may I say that there are many things about one's worldview, one's cosmogony, as some would call it, that rest in the beginning elements of the opening chapters of the Bible. You may notice the next thing on that slide. I'm sure we've all heard it said, it's unlikely that you'll know where you're going if you don't have some idea where you came from. There are many in our world today who think that they came from some evolutionary process of ancient matters where some single-celled organism over multiplied billions of years has become what they are today. May I say that isn't true. That simply isn't true. There are many elements in physics that wouldn't permit this. But by the very conception of it, may I say that once we know where we've come from, that is to say how we originated it answers a lot of questions about what should be the case concerning the journey of where we're going. About the middle of that slide, could I offer the thought there's really only two ultimate possibilities? Now, let me offer this from just a perspective of logic only two possibilities. When you give thought to the universe and everything in it, including life, either it came about naturally somehow by itself or there's a great force much superior to it that brought all of it into place every kind of presentation and every kind of philosophy must ultimately fall in one of those categories or the other because after all either it was created it created itself and that's it you and i of course strongly recognize which camp we are in due to our conviction in the bible But may I say, what about those who don't feel that way? Again, on that slide, you and I know quite well, the Word of God's answer to this is in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And beginning at that point, we begin to appreciate the fine-tuning fashion and the work in which the God of heaven organized and ordered and placed that creation. Remember, The word Genesis, which is the opening book in the Bible, the word means beginnings. It's the book of beginnings. In fact, things like that remind us about the sweetness of how God doesn't leave us in the dark concerning this. You may notice the next point on that slide. Look with me at just a few of the passages that are such strong faith-building ones. We've already noted Genesis 1-1. To that list, I would quickly add Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9. The psalmist, of course, many centuries later would ultimately write things like this, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. Isn't that powerful? He also included in that presentation, He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. You see, our God, by the character of the power of His voice, brought things into being. And the Hebrew writer summarized it in Hebrews 11 verse three, "By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And you and I will stand firmly on the truth of those statements. When asked, how did it all come about? this earth, the solar system at large, the universe in an even larger consideration, God fashioned it, He made it, and He brought it into being and stamped it with the earmarks and the appreciations of the structure that He found desirable. Is it any wonder that you and I might pause long enough to say that there is likely no single book of the Bible that has been more questioned, more maligned, than the book of Genesis. In order to believe in evolution, you have to set aside the first 11 chapters of Genesis in an absolute way. You can never hold to the fact there was a universal flood in the way Genesis describes it. You can never hold the fact there was a Garden of Eden the way Genesis describes it. And you sure cannot have conviction in six days of creation as the book of Genesis details it you have to have a different world view and a different appreciation than that. This next slide will go even further than that. You and I know that the other opportunity then to set aside this that men have chosen to pursue is to find a different explanation. Many would call it under the heading of organic evolution. As I've already mentioned, it is the principal mode of instruction in our science textbooks and I don't mean merely those at the university level. Check some of your middle school children's or grandchildren's science books. Look at a few of your second or third graders' science books. See what is said. You might be surprised. The humanist movement that began some time ago to infiltrate that kind of thinking, it is now the only mode of presentation by and large. Now, the teacher, thankfully, may choose his or her own opportunities to present other things, but following only the textbooks. You will hear nothing said about biblical creation. May I offer the following consideration. You and I also know that science is a highly respected discipline, and we each are quite thankful for discoveries and inventions that science has brought before us, particular pieces of equipment, medical knowledge, circumstances surrounding things we each enjoy on a rather regular basis, and we admire scientists in their supposed white coats in pursuit of natural truth. Sometimes that's a far more fanciful idea than what is actually the case, but the fact remains, science is highly respected. And quite often when a scientist says it some way, the population will accept it, even if the Bible is left in the dust. As you and I close that slide, it merely brings to our mind a few thoughts about the controversy before us. Let's think about a few other matters connected to the book of Genesis as it relates to the creation record. As you and I have already noted, and it's easy enough to appreciate, where do you and I stand in relation to the opening 11 chapters of the book of Genesis? Is it a story? Is it kind of like one of Aesop's fables? Or is it history? Actual, occurrent events that occurred, just as the Word of God describes. Well, as I've already mentioned, you and I, with our conviction in light of the Word of God, would stand rather strongly on not only those verses we've noted, but a few others that we're now going to consider as well. Could I ask this question? How do the later 65 books of the Bible, how do they relate to and instruct relative to Genesis chapters 1 to 11? What do they say about the creation? Did Jesus ever speak about it? And if He did, what did He say? Did He say what's consistent with the book we call Genesis? Did He offer any possibility or thought about some other worldview, including organic evolution? you can begin to see how serious this becomes. If you and I appreciate that Jesus was mistaken somehow concerning this, if Jesus in some way said that it literally happened in a way consistent with Genesis, but it really didn't, then that meant Jesus made a mistake. It meant that He either ignorantly or willfully lied. And you and I would have every reason to question whether He was the Son of God. Because surely the Son of God couldn't tell a lie. And he would have known how this universe began. In John chapter 5 verse 46, Jesus did have some things to say about this. You might recall the passage. He made reference to what Moses wrote, and Moses wrote the book of Genesis. It was he who penned it as well as the four books that followed. And when Moses made record of those things, did Moses know what he was talking about? Did he speak truth or not? Jesus made comment in John 5, 46 about what Moses asserted. And Jesus said, if you had believed Moses, you would believe in me. Could I offer the thought, if you and I mistakenly take in the wrong way features connected to, say, the creation record, then that means we will have opportunity to be in question concerning Jesus himself. Based on at least the conclusion of that passage. God cannot lie. Titus 1 verse 2 overwhelmingly highlights the fact our God, who is the God of truth, cannot lie. He can't. It is not a part of that which He can do. And yet, as you and I read what He wrote, what He offered to us by revelation, what do we conclude? Could God have shared with us what took place at the creation in a way that you and I can understand it? Well, obviously He can because He made us. He knows our intelligence. He understands language and what words convey. And yet, when you and I read the creation record, we come to appreciate things like this. You and I need to appreciate in a loving and strong way that these opening chapters in Genesis have an incredible bearing on some other things as I would invite you to consider on this next slide. I have been very selective and also very brief. If you look at the 65 books which follow the book of Genesis and you start asking which ones of them make statements about the creation consistent with the book of Genesis, my point would be this. If we're going to call the opening 11 chapters of Genesis into question, it's a story. It's a finely told myth. And so we slip those 11 chapters under the rug. How many other chapters must we slide under the same rug? How many later chapters in the Bible must we now interpret in some kind of figurative fashion in which it doesn't mean what it really says? You will be left with very few of the 65 remaining books. If you take out Genesis, at least those considerations connected to creation, that has a direct bearing on Exodus. Apparently I need to discount portions of that book as well. What about books like Ezekiel, 1 Peter, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Revelation, and on and on it goes. It would appear to me that you might be left with two of the whole 66 books of the Bible that make no reference in any way to the creation. If we compromise the creation record, we might as well compromise virtually all of the remaining books of the Bible. It's a more serious issue than one might be tempted to think, isn't it? Is it any wonder then on that slide, Paul could say in Colossians 1.16, In light of creation, had that the Son brought forth these things, and they were made by Him and for Him. And He upholds all of it by the word of His power. In Revelation 4, verses 5 and following, the very last book in the Bible Even here, we appreciate the fact that creation is something so majestic that God is deserving of praise because of it. By the way, doesn't that indicate that when we prescribe creation as something other than what God said that it was, we are withholding from Him the glory He's rightfully due due to His creation. Not only that, I've asked you to consider... In 2 Peter 3, verses 6 and following, the whole idea of that creation and the nature of the Noahic flood immediately was used by Peter as a reminder that there's coming also a day, of finality in which this earth will be destroyed, not by water, but by fire. And in fact, Peter highlighted the comparison between them like this. There were those then that were scoffers and unprepared. There's also going to be scoffers at the end not having believed in the Lord, not having obeyed His will, and they shall find themselves under the banner of judgment, 2 Peter 3.11. May I offer the thought, then in connection to all those matters, even the gospel accounts make references to the creation. I suspect that there would be few books in the Bible that at least many would rank any higher in their estimation than the gospel accounts. And yet... If we slide the Genesis record under the rug, then what do we do with the words of Jesus when He referred to that same record? Should we thus assert that the Lord's words ought to again be discounted? In Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36, not long before He was crucified, Jesus entered into a discussion in which He challenged them by referring to a man named Noah and a flood that happened and how that God's judgment (coughs) reigned supreme then just as it was going to, again at the final day, reminding one and all how watchful, how vigilant we each must be. Not only that, what about the statement of Mark 10, verses 6 through 9? In this instance, Jesus was asked a question about the characteristic of what we recognize as marriage. Where did it come from? Who originated the concept of marriage? May I say, every civilization on the planet has understood the place of marriage. And until recently, there was no question, one man and one woman. And over the last couple of decades, man has had the nerve to call that part into question at least. But again, it might be asked, if it's in every civilization on every planet, I'm sorry, every, every particular continent, then where did it come from? Well, you and I know in the Bible, God originated it in Genesis 2 the very place in which many would choose to call that part into question, and yet there it is, this universal occurrence, this universal happening amongst the human family. It's interesting to notice as you appreciate one last said on that passage. There's a rather interesting presentation in Luke chapter 3. Beginning in verse 23 of that chapter, you and I encounter what may appear to be an astounding listing. You know it well. It's one of those genealogies. So-and-so was the son of so-and-so, was the son of so-and-so, except this time as that's presented, it begins at Jesus and steps back through time giving us 76 names all the way back to Adam. Most would never call some of the later names on that list into question. That person you see who was rather late coming, what about those first ones? All the way back to Adam and then Seth and then the others listed in Genesis chapters 2 and following. If the latter ones were real, what about the first ones? Were they literal people that walked the planet? Surely they were. And that's the way the writer Luke reminds us that in fact They existed. As you and I close that slide, it allows me to move us in this direction too. Could I offer you three points of consideration relative to our subject of study tonight? God created the universe and all things in it. We stand so strongly on the conviction of that. May we never allow some scientist or group of scientists to put questions in our mind that maybe it really wasn't the way the Bible says. As I mentioned earlier, science isn't always the pristine search of truth that you may suppose. I have worked in that arena. A scientist has his or her suppositions just like anybody else. The data is here. How do I explain it? What is it that I use in terms of the knowledge gained to appreciate an explanation for that data? Well, clearly, if you approach the data with a presupposition of evolution, that's what you'll use to describe it and explain it. But if you don't have that as a supposition, you'll have an alternate explanation. Whatever suppositions you bring to the data will color your explanation. Could I offer you the thought, as much as you and I may respect science, may we ever appreciate that those two are fallible people, but the Word of God is not fallible. The Word of God is true. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And that statement of Psalm 119, verse 128, the Word of God is true. As you notice a few features of those opening points, the Bible explains to us the origin of these things, including our universe. It is the great power of God that did it. I understand quite well that those in the scientific community on occasion will have us believe that there was some explosion in the distant past and a big bang as it's called and everything in this universe, the matter, the mass, the energy, was all somehow an incredibly tiny dot, minuscule in size, and all of it came from that. There's a whole host of scientific problems with that, may I say. But may you and I recognize the Word of God still says that that's not how it happened. One other thing about that text would be a reminder that when Jesus made references to these things, including the development of life, He made statements that simply are not true in any way connected to any evolutionary scheme. Adam didn't just evolve. He didn't come about by some long process prior to him. Adam was the first man, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And as we read about him, he was aware, he was sentient, he was very bright. So much so, he could name the animals and remember what he called them. How good's your memory? Adam could, and he did. May I say that that prescription concerning... Our ancient ancestors, we often fail to give them sometimes the credit they deserve. Some of the things they built are still on the planet. What about some of the things you and I build today? Buildings, bridges, you name it. Are they going to last a few thousand years? Probably not. Isn't it interesting in light of those things, what about point number two? God created the universe and all things therein. But the Word of God has something to say about the time frame in which He did it. Here, of course, is a point wherein there is a great deal of distinction between what many might wish to believe and what the Word of God so clearly and easily says. Six days, you say. Have you heard someone make the statement, well, that word day there means a long era or epoch of time. And so really, there's enough time here for evolution. That really means... Six incredibly long periods of time, stretching over multiplied millions, if not billions of years. May I say, does that not call someone into question? If God meant day, what word should he be used? And could I offer this thought? the Hebrew language has its own word for a long epoch of time, and that's not what Moses used. That word exists, and we know it, and it's not the one that occurs. I've asked you to consider Genesis chapter 1, verses 5, 8, 13, 19, 23, and 31. Six times in the chapter it says, In the evening and the morning were the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth days. If it had been the intention of the Holy Spirit to indicate to us a day as you and I would appreciate it, could there have been a better way than to arrive at the thought that each one of these days involved an evening and a morning? This was not a long epoch of time. In fact, isn't it true that if it were, it really poses another question. How did the plants of day three live multiplied millions of years with no sunlight? Which didn't come along till day four. Isn't that Interesting. How did the trees survive with multiplied millions of years without the pollinators that would occur on day five? Interesting, isn't it? We cannot take the position that these were long eras or epochs of time. The Hebrew word doesn't put us in that position. And may I offer this thought. I've asked you to consider that there is an adjective that preceded each one of these references. First day, second day, third day. It certainly is true that there are occasions in the Word of God in which the word day can be used in a figurative fashion. No question about that. The book of Zephaniah has as its theme the day of the Lord. Well, is that a literal day? Or is that an occasion respective of an occurrence of God's judgment? And it's the latter. But could I ask you to note this? Every single time in the Bible... Every time, unless these are the exceptions. When the word day is preceded by an adjective like first, second, third, fourth, or so on. Every single time it's a literal 24-hour period we call a day, unless these are the exceptions. Did the Holy Spirit intend to convey to us six literal days? He did. In fact, would you read with me Exodus 20? Verses 8 and following. I'll call your attention to verse 11. Let's let the Holy Spirit identify this. What kind of days were these? Moses, of course, in writing would put it in this language Exodus chapter 20, verse number 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the seventh day, the, the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. The point perhaps to note for you and me is this. In that passage, the inspired writer said, It is true that the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. What kind of day was that? It's in the very same context that identifies, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. The fourth of the Ten Commandments. So, Moses, are you saying the day that one recognizes as the Sabbath, which is a Saturday, is that the same kind of day that's identified and described as the ones in the Lord's creation? Absolutely. It's the same kind of day in six days. You and I thus mustn't question the reality of the literal character of those days in the Genesis record. What about point number three? God created the universe and all things therein in six literal days not that long ago. Not that long ago. You've already heard me make reference tonight to the typical presentation of this universe is a bit less than 14 billion years old as we usually are told. And our solar system is somewhat over 5 billion years old as we're told. And earth is about 4.6 billion years, years old as we We are often told. But does the Bible give that kind of time frame? May I invite you to consider this particular slide. One thing the Genesis record sets before us is this. Isn't it true? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And you and I recognize that in that creation, mankind came along five days later. Five. Adam was created on day six. So you have five days between the creation of earth and the formation of Adam. If you and I can determine the age of Adam, we will be within five days of the age of this universe and everything in it. Does the Bible allow us to determine how long ago Adam was created? How long ago that God placed upon earth this creature called man? The answer is yes. Could we begin like this? Let's count backward. How long has it been from today to the time Jesus walked the planet? There isn't anybody that would question that one. Even our calendar tells us that one. You and I are currently living in the year 2023 A.D. What does A.D. mean? Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. The year of our Lord. It's been roughly 2,000 years from now until the time Jesus walked the planet. No one would question that. Let's go back even further. How long was it from Jesus back to Abraham? That again is a matter of easy answer. No one would question. He was right at 2,000 years. In fact, as you trace the history which not only the Old Testament presents, but which even secular history identifies, it was about 2,000 years. So that means Abraham walked this planet 4,000 years ago roughly. 2,000 years back to Christ, and then 2,000 years further than that, back to Abraham. We only have one thing left. Counting back even further, how long was it from Abraham back to Adam? You and I would have a difficult time answering that one, were it not for the records of Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 11. Because in those two chapters, we have these records one by one. You and I noticed that Adam bore a son. We have not only the name of the son, but we know Adam's age when the son was born. And then that son, Adam had a son, or Seth had a son, and we know his age when his son was born. All we have to do is take a calculator and add up the ages. And that will step us in time from Adam all the way to Abraham. And you've probably guessed it. It's approximately 2,000 years. 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus, 2,000 years from Jesus till now, the sum can't be much more than 6,000 years. The age of this planet, the age of the universe can't be numbered much over 6,000 years. You see, God's fashioning of this universe and everything in it helps us appreciate that He is in control and though man may have different ideas, it doesn't change what the Scriptures present, nor should it be utilized as a tactic to cause our faith to teeter or to wobble. What men say doesn't change what God said. As you close that slide with me, it allows us to draw a point of conclusion like this. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And suddenly, you and I notice the first day. Isn't it interesting to highlight then that God's creative record and the activities sent before us isn't hard to understand. Men have often tried to complicate matters by bringing in other philosophies and other ways to somehow fit evolutionary dogma into what the Bible says. As if we can hold evolution in one hand and the Bible in the other and appreciate they go hand in hand. They don't. They never will. The Word of God, you see, is what you and I appreciate how that this origin, this universe, the founding character of Genesis, and the beginning that it describes... I hope that that reminder tonight for each of us has been a strong encouragement to the opening chapters of Genesis and a reminder that if we call that into question, we must call much of the rest of the Bible in question as well. And that's a tragedy. That's awful. It might be that someone in this assembly tonight would wish to become a Christian. Maybe you recognize by the nature of the truth of the Bible how that there was a moment when an actual event in history occurred The Son of God went to the cross. On a Thursday afternoon, they nailed this perfect one to a cross. He went to the cross not for his sins, but for yours and mine, paying the price because of our foolishness and our willingness to disobey the commands of the God of heaven. We owe Him more than we can ever pay Him. Our faithful obedience is what He asks and what He demands. If you're not a Christian tonight, but you would wish to become one, we must simply do what He said. Believe in Him as a Son of God, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins, Luke 13, 5. Confess the greatness of His name as a Son of God, to borrow the wording of Matthew 10, 38. And then be buried in baptism for the remission of your sins, Acts two thirty eight. If you have known that kind of life, but you have perhaps in recent moments begun to live in ways that are not consistent with the teaching of the Word of God. He still loves you. He hasn't given up on you. Don't give up on yourself. Return to the faithfulness that you once had known. Make repentance of those sins. Make confession of them. He's promised to forgive you. We'd be happy to help, to assist, to encourage in any way that we might do it tonight. Brother Larry has selected a psalm encouragement, 714. And if you would wish to come, we invite you to do it now while together we stand and while we sing.